This episode is brought to you by Simply. Simply by Frito Lay snacks have ingredients to feel good about with no artificial flavors or colors. So you can snack a little smarter this year without giving up your favorite snacks. Reveal what else you're never going to give up in 2022 for a chance to win $1,000. Official rules at nevergonnagiveitup.com. No purchase necessary. Enter by February 27th, 2022. 17 plus, 50 US, DC, and PR. Welcome to the Bringing Intimacy Back Show where intimacy is real. On this show, we believe that intimately connecting with yourself, your significant other, children, family, friends, business networks, community, and your higher power can elevate your life to work towards a positive future. Thus, we explore intimate topics, inspiring life stories, spiritually and insightful tips on strengthening relationships. This show is hosted by Dr. April, a Florida-licensed mental health counselor, relationship and intimacy therapist, board-certified telemental health counselor, national certified counselor, and a certified sex therapist. She is the owner of Vacation Counseling and Cape Coral Therapists and the creator of the Intimate Connections newsletter. For more information about Dr. April's services and the Bringing Intimacy Back show, please visit bringingintimacyback.com. Check out past shows on Apple iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Now, let's get this episode of the Bringing Intimacy Back show started, because we share with you the secret power to intimacy to create a life you love, or love the life you create. Now, here's your host, Dr. April. Welcome to the Bringing Intimacy Back show, where intimacy is real. Well, on today's show, we're talking about something that has been starting to creep out into our lives a lot lately, especially things that I've been seeing um, on social media, but also in doing counseling. And it's maybe because that we're all stuck together and we're all trying to figure, you know, what works and what's not. So what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about infidelity. Today's topic is about the anatomy of infidelity. Or what we can say in layman's terms, I can't move on from my cheating partner. Where do I go from here? I hear that from a lot of different um, people. Um, Sometimes therapists are working with clients. What do we do? So I researched and researched, and guess what I found? An award-winning counselor and researcher who is a leading expert in the field of infidelity recovery. In fact, he is considered the godfather of modern infidelity. Dr. Tahala Al-Saleem, how are you doing this morning? Oh, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And I'm really excited to uh, share some of my knowledge with your audience. Okay, welcome. Yes. And just to let you know that he has written a very good book that I've read, and I'm going to recommend it to a variety of people. We'll talk later about the book. But it's called Infidelity, The Best Thing That Can Happen to Your Marriage. And he's also the founder of what we call Infidelity Counseling Center, where he does a lot of research interests and clinical work on focusing on infidelity. And the other great thing about him is that he's also training other therapists to work with infidelity. And he's created a therapy called Systematic Affair Recovery Therapy, which is a method of infidelity counseling that has helped hundreds of couples navigate the challenges on how do you heal from the journeys of affair. He's an international lecturer and speaker, so I'm so glad that he's here. 
and he is here to share with us a variety of different tools and techniques and what we can do when we have a cheating partner or we've been cheated on or we're working with um, people who have cheated on. So again, welcome. But before we start, um, I kind of want to know, you know, I'm just getting to know you and stuff, but how has this last few months of COVID, and I shouldn't even say last few months, it's almost the whole year. <laughs> yes. How is that impacting you and how are you doing? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. To me, I always find that it's important to, when you deal with some kind of a stressful event, a global stressful event, is to take the time, not just only to be safe, but also engage in a lot of self-care and appreciate the good things in your life and try to find a silver lining. So for me, I think, you know, uh, even though this have impacted my ability to travel and train other therapists, it, it, it forced me to create an opportunity to develop an online version of the training. So, you know, they say every cloud has a silver lining. So I think this is an opportunity to kind of refocus, expand new ideas and pursue new things. Uh, but from the cl clinical aspect, you know, this impacted uh, folks in general. I've been seeing a lot of uh, people who are calling because they're dealing with infidelity disclosure, I think being confined within the same space, uh -huh. uh, a lot of people an opportunity to actually see that their relationship is in a struggle and an opportunity to actually do something about these issues. Okay, good, yes. Um, was couples always something you were interested in or how did you even get started in this field? Well, you know, I, I did not take the traditional routes. You ask most counselors, you know, mm -hmm. how did you choose counseling? They say, you know, I had trouble. Somebody helped me along the way. I don't want to pass it forward. Now, obviously, I do believe counseling has an intrinsic value in terms of, yes, this is something that brings a lot of joy and very rewarding to do as a profession. Uh, I ended up choosing counseling because I've always had interest in uh, human behavior in general. My undergraduate training was actually in anthropology which oh, you kind of see the, the, the big patterns of human behavior, but also always had interest in psychology too, which is the micro version uh, or the zoom lens on individual human behavior. Uh, so, you know, when, when I was a student, I thought, okay, well, how do I translate my academic interest into, you know, uh, work-related pursuits? Uh, so I decided to take a few internships uh, while I was a student, and one of them was with a local county mental health services. I was a caseworker for clients who are dealing with severe mental health issues, and I just fell in love with that job. Uh, I felt that, you know, I, I, I discovered that I have this innate capacity for connecting with people, uh, this mm -hmm. ability to actually help them sort throughout the struggles that they have in their life, uh, ability to help them generate insights and come up with concrete solutions to, to, uh, to uh, resolve their problems. So that was kind of like my interest in, in, in counseling, which led to pursuing graduate training in marriage and family therapy and later on a doctorate in marriage therapy. As far as why working with couples, uh, this is funny because uh, most therapists usually don't like working with couples or are anxious about working with couples because they're difficult, right? For me, I, 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 I love working with couples because I feel like it's suited for my skill set. I like the energy. I like the challenge. But also, I think it's more rewarding for me as a clinician to work with couples because the impact that you accomplish working with couples help people feel better about themselves individually, but also help the whole family and the kids if they have kids. So I feel like the impact that I make is, is magnified when I work with couples. Okay. Why the focus on, because um, with couples, there's still, there's a lot of things you can focus on. 
why did you decide to specialize on one of the most difficult things that couples focus or that come to them is infidelity? Great question. So, so here's the thing. For, for the folks who work with couples, they realize what? That the majority of couples, when they seek help, they're not coming in usually for a tune-up. There are some people who come in for prevention or do premarital counseling. But most of the times, couples are coming in because they're in a crisis. They waited too long uh, for things to escalate to the point where they're actually needing help. What I began to realize when I began to have my private practice working exclusively with couples is that the majority of the clients were in a crisis because they're dealing with either a past infidelity that happened a long time ago that was not resolved or a recent infidelity. Uh, so, uh, and again, historically, I've always kind of been the type of uh, student who always liked to take a challenge. Uh, but, but also part of it is that when I began to look at my clinical toolbox, look at all these tools that I accumulated throughout the years, I realized that none of the toolbox that exist in the field are good enough to uh, work with infidelity because none of them were tailor-made for infidelity. Mm -hmm. So as they say, need is mother for invention, right? I thought, you know, I had this uh, privilege and opportunity to serve clients who were in a crisis because of infidelity, and maybe I can begin to jot down my ideas and thoughts, and I can actually come up with a treatment approach that will help them during this difficult time. Okay. And so I know in your intro, I mentioned a book and I'm also mentioning um, a, ther a therapy. Um, which came first? Was it the, the book? Because you said you gathered all your information and that came first? So, so, so the book actually uh, was, came after the, the, the model was developed, right? Because, okay. because to me, that's the next step is that when you actually come up with a modality of treatment or when you actually come up with a new finding is the next step is to share it with others. And I wrote the book to, uh, make, to, to give clients an opportunity to understand that infidelity doesn't have to be a traumatic event that will destroy the rest of your life, that there is hope of healing, whether it's about mm -hmm. repairing the relationship or healing individually. And there is a blueprint that people need to follow in order for them to get from point A to point Z. Okay. Okay. And I am, one of the things I probably should have started off with, we keep saying the word infidelity. And so to make sure that the audience and you and I are on the same page, um, what is your, because you do provide a very good definition of infidelity in the book. In the book, guys, it's called the best thing that can happen to your marriage. What is your it's, definition? It's, it's the best, worst thing that could happen. Oh, best, to your worst thing. That's what I'm yeah. sorry. The be, I'm sorry. The oh, best, worst, I'm sorry. The best, worst thing that could happen in your marriage. Um, what is your definition of infidelity? So, so I'll start with this. I think it's very important for us to be aware what terminology we use when we talk about the issue of infidelity, whether as clinicians and even for the clients who are dealing with this. Uh, the, the first puzzle that I had to solve is how do you define infidelity, right? What is infidelity? Because it's going to mean something different for each couple because people come from different type of backgrounds, different type of belief system, different type of relationships. Not all relationships are uh, monogamous. There are some relationships where people who are in open marriages or polyamory, right. right? Those guys deal with infidelity too. We need to come up with a definition that works for everybody. Right. And the problem that I found is that in the literature and whatever treatment models that has been in existence, all the ways that we're defining infidelity is limited. It's based on heteronormative bias, meaning that it's only designed for specific type of relationships. Uh, so my definition of infidelity comes from my belief that we all have the capacity to live alone and fulfill our own emotional and sexual needs. Can we do it? 
Sure, but it's a quality of life issue. Can I survive on tofu? Sure, I can, but I'm missing out on a lot, right? Right. So life is more fulfilling when you share it with others who can help fulfill some of those emotional and sexual needs, which means that all relationship should operate like a business partnership where there is a mm -hmm. clear contract that specify how many partners we have in this relationship. Is it one? Is it two? Is it 20? Right. Right. Uh, what are what are the emotional and sexual needs that we expect to be fulfilled in this relationship by those partners? And to what extent those needs fulfillment is exclusive, meaning it's just for these people in this relationship and nobody else. Right. So this makes infidelity what infidelity becomes a breach, a conscious breach of contract of exclusivity that you have with the partners in the relationship. It is uh, any times you outsource those needs that you have said are exclusive to my partner to somebody else outside of the partners in the relationship. This gives you a wide range of way to define infidelity. So I'll put this to, to illustrate this example. If we use watching pornography for some couples in some relationship, they might be okay with it. And for them, it might be actually a tool for intimacy. In other relationship, it's seen as infidelity. It's based on the relationship contract that they have. So they have a contract to say, you know what? I don't, I'm, I'm expecting all your sexual needs, whether it's arousal or satisfaction to be met exclusively by me, watching pornography in this sense would be a violation of that contract. Does that make sense? No, that makes definite sense. Um, I know some couples may be listening, or people may be listening and said, saying to themselves, well, I never really signed a contract. We never discussed it. Great, great, great comment. So this contract, Okay, so unfortunately, we live in a day and age where sometimes we don't really take the important steps to actually clarify those expectations from our partners. Now, when I say a contract, it doesn't mean it's actually something that we have to written. Sometimes it's an implied expectation, right? And so right. a lot of times it's an issue of like, did you or did you not know that this is what I'm expecting from you, right? Now, of course, it is always important for people in a new or an old relationship to continuously make that stuff clear because your partner is not a mind reader, right? right? And, and to me, and, and even if sometimes you have a clear contract and it was breached, sometimes the contract was breached because the contract itself is unrealistic or it's not mm -hmm. a healthy contract. Right, exactly. Yeah, and I'm glad you even put that in the sense of um, the contract was not um, able to be met because it was unrealistic. Because sometimes people make unrealistic, you know, um, contracts or things in their head. And I know I've had clients who have said, you know, they don't want their partner to have lunch with any person of the opposite sex, even though their partner has to do a lot of networking and a variety of things. So, sure. Yeah, that's, that, that's a great example. And, and to me, you know, that, that, that definition of fidelity allowed me the flexibility to, you know, because the clients, when they're coming into, come to you, they're asking your opinion as a therapist. What do you call this, right? And I'll give you the classic right. example. You know, you have a couple you're working with and say, why are you here? One person says, well, I'm here because I did something stupid or because I did something inappropriate. You ask the other person, why are you here? Well, we're here because this person cheated on me. Now, mm -hmm. if it's actually something inappropriate or something minor and you called it infidelity, then you just exaggerated a minor problem. But exactly. if it's actually infidelity and, and you called it something, you know, minor or something stupid, then you just minimized uh, a big problem. And either way, you're alienating one of your clients, which means that you cannot really move forward because we have to agree, what is it that we're calling this problem? Because that's going to determine how we're going to fix it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And what you just said, um, when 
that happens many times the couples are not connecting and and that is really important you know this shows about intimacy it's about people connecting sure but if one is minimizing one is maximizing they're on different pages yeah and even even if they you know they were already in different pages before infidelity happened now when infidelity happened they're for sure going to be in, in a different uh, pages and have more difficulty connecting and seeing each other's perspective Yes, definitely. Well, we're going to take a short break. And then when we come back, we're going to get into the meat, to the meat and bones of infidelity and talk about different ways um, for the betrayer, the person who's unfaithful, and for couples that we're working with this topic. During this difficult time that we are all facing, many people are in need of someone to talk to. One option is speaking to a therapist to express your anxieties if you're feeling isolated or just need someone that will listen and help you with coping skills to get through. Dr. April Brown is now accepting new clients and is working with her existing clients through distance video counseling. The services are through a secure online HIPAA web-based practice management platform called Simple Practice. This technology can provide a secure two-way interactive video counseling session over the internet. For more information about video counseling, please email Dr. April Brown at info at draprilbrown.com or you may call 239-565-6921. Thank you. And remember, we are all in this together. Okay, welcome back. Um, on this show today, we've been talking about infidelity, and we've been talking with a leading expert, Dr. Alasan Asling, in the sense of dealing with infidelity. And as we were just um, talking about, he was mentioning that sometimes um, this disconnect of infidelity, there's things that maybe couples are disconnecting prior to this. So I'm curious, even before we get to that, the need of bones of infidelity, what do you think really believe why infidelity does happen? Uh, this is, again, one of the most important questions that couples usually have after the discovery of infidelity. And this is the questions that uh, all clinicians are kind of in search uh, for, for an answer for. There is this myth about why infidelity happened. You ask the average person or the clinician, average clinician why infidelity happened, a lot of times say, well, people cheat because they're not having their relationship or they're you know, dissatisfied with their partner. Now, relationship issues is one of the leading causes of infidelity, but it's not the only one. Uh, okay. They are uh, individual factors that could lead to infidelity and there are sociocultural factors that lead to infidelity. Uh, and talk about the individual factors. We all have seen those relationships where we look at it and we, when we find out infidelity happened, we scratch our head, we don't get it. I don't get it. They're compatible. They seem to be good together. You know, they seem to have a great partner. Why are they straying out of their relationship? Sometimes infidelity happened because an individual issue that the unfaithful is dealing with that has nothing to do with the relationship issues. Uh, there are many individual factors uh, related to mental health. And again, uh, just because somebody has this label, that's my disclaimer, doesn't mean they're going to be unfaithful. It just means they're going to have a higher probability of inviting infidelity in their life. 
A common individual issue is people who deal with personality disorder. Uh, common things that I see in my practice uh, is folks with narcissistic personality disorder and somebody who's a narcissist. Uh, part of the hallmark of the symptoms is this constant need for attention. So even though they might have a partner who's giving them the appropriate attention that can be given in that relationship is not going to be good enough because they want it from multiple sources. But also a narcissist is somebody who feels that they're unique and special and don't have to play by the same roles that their partners play with, which means that they might allow themselves to, you know, have more partners just because they're so unique and mm -hmm. special. Uh, also, folks who struggle with sex addiction or hypersexuality, the nature of their symptoms is what? It's this uh, hypersexuality and impulsivity. So they tend to have higher prevalence rates of uh, infidelity. Uh, people who struggle with substance abuse and dependency issues. Uh, mm -hmm. Actually, the research shows there's a lot of people who fantasize about infidelity, but they don't do it because they worry about the consequences. Now, if we put this into perspective of substance abuse and dependency, Somebody might cross those lines of fantasies because when you have substance abuse issues, you have impaired judgment, poor impulse control, and it could easily cause somebody to uh, cross those lines. So this is just kind of a glimpse of some of the individual factors that could lead to infidelity that has nothing to do with the relationship issues. Uh, as far as uh, socio-cultural factors that lead to infidelity, this is something that researchers and clinicians need to pay better attention to. Uh, there are a lot of things outside of the individual relationship factors that could lead to infidelity or increase his likelihood of engagement in fidelity. And I'll choose two things, cultural belief system, as well as occupational stressors. Cultural mm. belief systems, think of it this way. We all belong to some kind of a macro or micro cultures, right? Macro cultures of, you know, ethnicity, nationality, religion, micro culture could be the type of jobs we have or our family of origin, right? right. And if you're part of a cultural group in which the belief system or the cultural norms doesn't frown upon infidelity or see infidelity as a sign of masculinity, you're more likely you're going to engage in those behaviors simply because your cultural belief system kind of give you permission to do so. Uh, and this is especially important if, if we're talking about the family of origin. That's why I always train my clinicians. When you're asking, when you're working with couples with infidelity, you need to ask what kind of relationship was modeled to them and how much of this related to how you grew up and how infidelity was handled in the household that you grew up in. Uh, as far as occupational factors, uh, there's this website called Ashley Madison. I don't know if you're familiar with it, right? Yes. Uh, for, for the listeners who are not, it's a website where people uh, are interested in finding an affair. That's where they go to. In 2014, there was a data breach that allowed researchers to look at the different type of categories of jobs that people have on this website. And they found out that specific type of jobs tends to have higher prevalence rates of infidelity. So I'll share with you some of the common ones that I encounter in my practice. And again, just because somebody has this job doesn't mean they're going to be unfaithful. It just means they have a higher probability. A common one is uh, folks who work in uh, nursing, firefighters, police officers, uh, first responders. And what do these guys have in common? Well, they all have long, crazy hours, graveyard shift, which yeah. provides stress in the relationship. Uh, they uh, usually have to deal with a lot of trauma that we don't deal with as civilians. Uh, but also, people who work in these jobs, in order for them to survive, they have to have a strong bond with their work partners, right? Mm -hmm. It's needed for their survival. And their partner, probably somebody who's also have a strained relationship because of the limitations of the job, right? You add mm -hmm. all this stuff together, poor boundaries can flourish into, you know, uh, infidelity, emotional, sexual.
that. So I think that's just one example of job category that could increase one risk for having infidelity in their life. Yeah, and so um, I agree with you. I always ask my couples, um, you know, tell me your experience of relationships they saw going up. Did they see a healthy relationship and stuff? And it's interesting that you mentioned that, but sometimes if a person has seen someone had affairs or cheated on their mom or whatever the case may be, they say they don't want to be do that. But yet, when stress hits and things happen in their life, they somehow tend to do that. So I totally agree with you in that aspect. And also, as you were saying, with different um, professions. And many of those professions are also professions where there are, always helping others, but they're not taking care of themselves, which yep. leads to self-care, the mental health, you know, which of course leads to those other things. Um, the great thing um, that you do outline this in, in his book, which is a really good thing um, about how these things happen. So yeah, yeah, I really, um, thank you for sharing that information. Okay. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, we just talked about why it happens. And then your book is titled, and I know I keep saying about the book, the best worst thing that happened, that could happen to your marriage. So we just talked about it. And we just said about the worst part, it's, it's the infidelity. Why do you say it's the best worst? Okay. So it, it, it's, it's a hard concept for people to wrap their mind around. And a lot of times people think like, you know, they read the title and say, what does that mean? You're advocating for infidelity? No, right. I'm not advocating for infidelity. You don't want to have infidelity. It's not a remedy to fix your relationship issues. But there is a silver lining of something as awful as infidelity. And I always give the example of heart attacks. So think of it this way. We all know that we need to exercise and eat healthy but not all of us actually stick to those expectations. We all know that if you eat better, eat healthier, you're gonna have live a healthier long life. But when something bad happened, like a heart attack, people actually pause and say, okay, so how bad do I want to live, right? This is my right. opportunity to actually make those changes, right? Or, you know, some people just gonna say, you know what, I'm gonna continue doing what I'm doing, right? Okay. So it, it gives people that opportunity, this kind of, uh, wake up call to say, okay, something is seriously wrong in your life. So the same thing happens with relationship as well as individual issues. A lot of people know that they have individual problem and relationship problems they need to take care of. But a lot of times they don't take the time and the resources to do it. It could be because life is busy, they don't have the resources or they don't think it's bad enough. When infidelity happens, this is like the biggest wake up call that, hey, something is seriously wrong in your relationship, right? This is the time to actually put in all the effort to look at the individual relationship as well as sociocultural factors that led to infidelity and rise up to the challenge to have a new healthy relationship. And again, bring it back to, to the heart attack. The people who actually take that seriously, they would, you'd notice that they would eat better and exercise better than any other point of their life because they know that, you know, I got a new lease on my right. life. Right. And so with infidelity, it is, can be very traumatic when it happens to us. And for um, the culture, or many times in our culture, it's like you leave. If infidelity happens, you automatically just go, you leave. Um, but is that the right thing to do? And how does this trauma can be a catalyst for change? Perfect. So I'll start about with the piece with the catalyst for change. Because to me, I define healing from infidelity, not necessarily to have to rebuild a relationship. That's certainly one potential outcome. 
But the goal is what? Is to not let this devastating traumatic event define the rest of your life, which means that you either heal together and rebuild the relationship be better than it was before or heal individually. How can it be a catalyst for change? It's either going to be a catalyst to allow you to fix the relationship issues that should have been fixed all this time, or it could be a catalyst for change to realize that this relationship is just not going to go anywhere and now is the time to move forward and get the relationship that you deserve and have always wanted, right? And, right. and that's why actually the process is designed to help guide people to kind of understand what happened, why it happened, assess the damage, and figure out what's the best healing journey for them. But bringing this back into, you know, this cultural expectation when, when it happens, you leave, you, you actually, and, and there is research when you do this, when you survey people, what do you do? What would you do if uh, your partner cheated on you? Most people say, I would leave. I would not stay in the relationship. But the reason they say that, because you're asking them a hypothetical. And in that moment of hypothetical, the only thing that you can imagine is what? The pain, the hurt, the betrayal. Now, when it actually happens, yes, you have the pain and the hurt and the betrayal, but you also have these conflicting feelings. But I love this person. We right. had a good life together, right? And that's why people position about should we work in the relationship or not changes when it happens in reality versus a hypothetical. And that's why I encourage always my clients to say whatever decision you make about the relationship, it cannot be based on what society tells you to do. It has to be a decision that you can live with and deal with the consequences of regardless of each direction. Right, and I um, like how you outlined it in the book because, and also in your practice and in what you do, because um, for sometimes if you just leave without getting all that information, many people are stuck. Like, I don't know what happened, what, why this and that. And so the process that you have yeah. set up allows yeah. them to and, understand. And yeah, and thank you for bringing that up. And actually, and that that is like the, the the first part of the book is this message of why why should you process infidelity, right? right. Be, because for me, it's not about well, this you know going through the process. You're doing it because you have to choose repairing the relationship. No, you owe it to yourself and to your partner to figure out how did we get to this point, so we don't find ourselves in the same situation regardless of whether or not we stay together. Because mm -hmm. there are a lot of times where people walk away from an infidelity incident they did not process and they move on and they enter the new relationship with this baggage, right? So whoever they bring into their life is dealing with all this uh, stuff that they should have been dealing with after the discovery of infidelity, specifically mm -hmm. as it comes uh, to, to issues of trust. Right, definitely. I tell them that their heart is, when, you know, infidelity happens many times, it's like a stab in the heart and it has hope. And if you don't really work on those holes to, to heal, then you bring that into the next relationship. Yeah. So definitely. But sometimes I notice in the beginning, couples get stuck on, well, who's at fault here? Yeah. They get stuck in that. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if you see that too in the beginning. So, 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 here, so that's another challenging part here too, because... In order to help people understand what happened, we need to get the story of the fear, which is part of the milestones uh, in the recovery process, right? right? But there are a lot of relationships where the infidelity was caused by relationship issues, right? Mm -hmm. it, it is a delicate balance. How, how do you bring this up? How do you address it? Because sometimes it sounds like you're blaming the betrayed partner for the affair. You're saying, well, it's your fault that this, you know, because if you were a better partner, they wouldn't have done this. So there's how I navigate it for me as a clinician and as a person. And I share this with my clients. I say, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing that justify or excuses infidelity. 
but it doesn't mean we should not understand the reason that led to it because everything we do, good or bad, happens for a reason, right? right. And but, but take this further, even in the situations where the infidelity happened 100% because of relationship issues, whether it's compatibility, whether it's communication, whatever the case might be, right? The unfaithful is 100% responsible for how they acted on this relationship dysfunction. Because in most cases, and I say most cases because there's always exceptions, you have options. If you have, even if you have the worst partner in the universe, at the end of the day, take them to counseling so they can fix those relationship issues or say, you know what, thanks, this is not working out for me before I cross that line, right? So there is a way to address that, that accountability, but without minimizing the responsibility of that fair. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And um, Dr. Al-Salam um, outlines a lot of this in his book. And one great thing about your book is that it, out, it has like a step-by-step -step process on how do we go about dealing with affairs from the betrayer, from also the person who's having the affair and stuff. Have you found that this process has been um, healing or how do how long do people take in this process or can you just briefly share a little bit about the process? Sure. So, so the, the process again was designed, like I said, that the need of mother invention is when I realized there is no process for me as a therapist. And this is somebody who right. went to school for years, right? Uh, it felt like I was doing therapy and counseling in the dark. Uh, the process was developed based on my observation of the clinical areas where people get stuck. So when I began jotting down my observation, I realized that all my clients, regardless of what kind of background they come up with, type of relationship they have, how long they've been together, they all used to get stuck in very specific areas. And those specific areas that kind of set the stage for the milestones. Uh, and again, the milestones were designed to help people to deal with the infidelity from the point of discovery all the way to end of what are we going to do about it and how do we move forward. So there are several seven milestones. The first one is setting the stage for healing. And the clinical objective in, in that milestone is what? To make sure that we're helping create the optimal environment for recovery. Uh, there are a lot of times when people discover infidelity, they make a lot of mistakes, reactionary mistakes, because they didn't consult with somebody. So the whole right. focus of that stage is to avoid some of those mistakes. A common one would be blasting the business for everybody else. Right? Yes. On social yes. media or going after the third party. The third party is the other man and the other woman in the affair. And oftentimes third party is actually usually somebody who's a coworker and now we're dealing with an HR problem and an HR nightmare that affects people's livelihood. So, so the focus of, uh, you know, that, that first milestone is kind of really help create agreements to have that we have the right environment to recover. Uh, the second milestone, which is the most important milestone, is getting the story of the affair. And I would have to say, this is where people get stuck at for years, mm -hmm. right? And, and they get stuck at because they either share too little or share too, share too much or the story does not make sense. In order for right. people to actually figure out what they're going to do after the affair, they have to understand what exactly happened and why it happened because that's going to you know, dictate where we're going to go from that point. Uh, the third milestone is acknowledging- uh, Can I ask a question about the second? Yeah. On the second one, um, I know couples, you know, you may tell the story and then, I don't know, a week later, the person asks another question about the story and, and this and that and that whole, you know. <laughs> great, great thing. So, so here's what I'm going to say. And I could talk about the story for hours, right? Right. Uh, common mistakes that people do is that they either, you know, uh, 
are flat out being dishonest about what happened and happens for a variety of reasons, or that they are giving the truth by a dropper, right? You know, right. every week I'm gonna give you a piece, which is more damaging than lying in the right. first place, right? If the story, if you take the time with your clients to do the story properly and you ask the right questions and you guide them through the process and you get to the story that makes sense to everybody, right? Then we have to make the commitment that we are done revisiting that. A lot of times when this re-questioning every week, it happens because the story is not adding up, right? Yeah. Or, or yeah. you know, or, or the, ask the right questions are not being asked. So that's yeah. when I say, you know, to my clients, they say, you know, I don't care how many sessions we, we spend on this, we do it until it makes sense to everybody. But once we get to that point, we have to all make the agreement that we are done with the interrogation part because that's just wasted energy. And right. also, I ask that this would be the time where we destroy any text evidence that we have so that we don't ruminate and obsess over it, right? Okay. But, but, this, but this can only happen if people really say, you know what, yeah, based on what we know about the history, about all the mm -hmm. sequence of events, about what we discovered, yeah, the story makes sense, it's logical, now we can move on to the next part. Right, and do you also agree that sometimes certain details don't need to happen? You know, the sexual Great. part or also, um, you know, they went out five times versus <laughs> six times or eight times, you know, it doesn't matter that he it cheated. I, I, am, I am glad you brought this up. This is actually, so, so not only people who are dealing with fairly are not sure how much they share is, is important. Therapists usually anxious about this. You have some therapists who say, who cares about the story? Because if you share details, it's just going to traumatize people. And you have some therapists who say, no, every little detail is important. I think it's somewhere in the middle. I right, think right. I, I think main element of the story need to be shared. So so here's the tool actually I give to other therapists and I share with my clients to say okay, we don't have access to 24/7 recording uh, of everything that happened. And even if we did, right. that's not going to tell us anything. Everything. Right. It doesn't going to tell us thoughts or feelings. So let's do this. Let's give the unfaithful the opportunity to tell the story. Allow me as the counselor to ask some questions to help establish sequence of events, motives, right? And, and let's put this story to the test of what you discovered and what you know about the history of the relationship and what you know about each other. But also as the betrayed, you're more than welcome to ask anything that you want about the infidelity. But before you get the answer to that question, we have to make a case for, how is the answer to this question is going to help you understand what happened? And how is the answer to that question is going to help you understand why it happened? If you're able to pitch a case for it, then it's a good question to ask. If you cannot, then it's probably going to generate unnecessary thoughts and image in your head. How does this translate in reality? So let's say you have a couple who's dealing with a sexual infidelity, right? Uh, is it important to ask what kind of sexual positions that they were involved between the betrayed and the, uh, the between the third party and the unfaithful? You know, when I ask this question, some people say yes and some people say no. And I say both are right. So what is it appropriate, right? So. Right. If, let's say that the sexual infidelity happened because of a relationship issue, compatibility, one person is vanilla and the other person on the other side of cake, then it's a fair question to ask because I want to know what is this person is providing that you feel is lacking in the relationship. But even if, you, even if there is a case for it, it needs to be done at the lowest level of detail. We don't need technicolors, right? Now, if we use the same example of the sexual infidelity happened because of individual reason of sex addiction, does it really matter what kind of sex positions they were involved in? Not really, because it's not about compatibility. It's about the addiction piece. Uh, but, but again, for me, is, is making sure what, what, what people oftentimes don't understand is that 
when the betrayed asking the question, there is a legitimate need behind the question. Sometimes they're just asking the wrong question. And if you mm -hmm. have them take the moment, they will ask, they, they'll be able to get uh, at the piece that is missing for them and you can help them come up with a different question that will address that. Wow, okay. Thank you so much for sharing that. So I'm not gonna give away the whole book because you guys need to go out there and buy it. Okay, and there's many other steps on there. Um, the one thing that, of course, he's been also talking about is um, for, cup, for counselors. So you also have a therapy called the Systematic Affair Recovery Therapy. Can you tell us a little bit about that and why you decided to help other counselors um, become more informed with great effective tools to work with couples who have um, infidelity issues? Perfect. So systematic affair recovery therapy was developed uh, initially to help me do my job successfully because like I said, when I began seeing my clients and figure out that, uh, that there is no tailored made tools, I thought, you know, you know, you can be the first one to actually investigate that and, and do it. Uh, so once I began to, to do my presentation, because a lot of people know I work with couples and do consultation, and I realized that a lot of the therapists are just not even they're clueless about some of those major mistakes that's being made in the therapeutic setting. So mm -hmm. it necessitated the need for me to actually make that process, you know, more formalized, especially when I realized that a lot of therapists are thirsting for that knowledge. They don't need, you know, <laughs> and one thing that became apparent when I, when I do my presentation, I always ask people, how many of you in this room uh, have dealt with infidelity directly and directly? All the hands gets raised up. And my follow-up question, how many of you recall taking a graduate level course to prepare you with infidelity disclosure? And everybody's like, none. That's a problem, especially right. when you're dealing with, with, with a major issue that had devastating impact. So that kind of warranted, at that point of time, I already had uh, what they call a practice-based evidence approach. I knew what the steps were based on my work with my clients, right? Mm -hmm. But I wanted to give clinicians a practice-based approach that also have evidence-based research which okay. warranted my further research. My doctorate actually was in uh, researching infidelity as a clinical construct and some of the limitations of the way we're treating it. So the, the systematic affair recovery therapy is really, is helping the clinicians, uh, help the clients navigate those milestones described in the book, but also give them a lot of clinical intervention and help them kind of navigate those challenging part. Because you ask clinicians all this time their anxiety about working with couples dealing with infidelity. I don't want to make things worse. Things are intense, but also sometimes you know their personal issues get in the way too because we're human beings despite our clinical training. Right. Thank you so much for sharing that information. Well, we're going to take a break, and in this break here, I would like Doctor um, for you to um, tell a little bit more about what you provide services, um, the recovery therapy thing. I know you also have a retreat and some books. So take it away. Let us know how all about you and how we can reach you. Perfect. So for, for, for those of you who are listening, if you are a client who is interested in obtaining services to help you deal with a recent or past uh, infidelity, uh, you're more than welcome to reach me at my website, Infidelity Counseling Center, where you learn about the clinical services that I provide, whether it's uh, outpatient, in-person, or virtual, as well as uh, a three-day intensive uh, infidelity recovery retreat. But if you are a counselor or a clinician who is interested in learning more about how to do effective counseling with couples who are dealing with infidelity and would like to learn more about systematic affair recovery therapy, uh, 
you can find me at systematicrecoverytherapy.com at this point of time. Uh, there is uh, three levels of training uh, and certification course to be certified as a systematic affair recovery therapist, but also there are just, uh, there are a few two to three or one hour uh, online courses that you can take as CDUs just to give you exposure to the treatment model and whether or not this is something that you want to pursue. Awesome. Okay. Yes. Well, thank you so much for letting us know about that. And so um, in this last segment, we provide tips. And so um, <clears throat> can you provide us with some tips for um, the betrayed person in the relationship and also tips for the one who's been unfaithful and how in this, this infidelity and how to help them reconnect? Perfect. I'll start with tips for the unfaithful. So one thing I encourage the unfaithful to do is to engage in proactive transparency. And this is something important when they are attempting to tell the story, which I recommend to do it with the presence of a clinician rather than do it on your own. So transparency is what I describe it as I live in a glass house, whatever you want to see, I will let you see, I'm not going to block you. But I ask the unfaithful to be proactively transparent, meaning I want you to go out of your way to share with me and with your partner some of the unpleasant truth that led to the infidelity. I'm not asking you to do this to traumatize your partner. I'm asking you to do this to what? To showcase to yourself and to your partner that you're willing to take the, some of the difficult steps to come clean and to look at those issues so that we can actually see what we're going to do about them. So that, that is a very important thing to, to keep in mind. And again, avoid lying and have truth because I've been doing this for many years. Truth always comes back, right? Uh, you know, if you lie about things right now, uh, there will be a way to find out because even if you take it to your grave, the third party is a wild card. They may or may not be on board with that. So it's best to come clean right away. Uh, it's important to, when you're acknowledging the impact of infidelity and you provide an apology, that it's a sincere apology. Uh, after discovering infidelity, a lot of clients say, you know what, we, there is a million apology from the unfaithful, but they were not well received by the betrayed. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the case because they're reactionary and they're very general. I'm sorry I hurt your feeling. I'm sorry I got caught. If you want to provide an apology that is meaningful, it cannot happen without truly articulating your acknowledgement of how much damage that you caused. It's different. Your apology would be more meaningful if you say, I'm sorry that because of my infidelity, now you're insecure and you don't like how you look in the mirror. I'm sorry that because of my infidelity, now you cannot uh, socialize with people because you're worried about blurring out our relationship problems, right? Uh, it has more value and more meaning. Another important tip that I have for the unfaithful is that after the discovery of uh, infidelity, their relationships change and change drastically. So people tend to act in very abnormal ways, right? And it's really important to be aware of how you're acting and explain that to your partner. A common complaint that I hear from the betrayed is that while well, I feel that the unfaithful is just don't care about what they did and they're apathetic. And you ask them, why do you think that? They say, well, every time I want to talk about the affair, they don't want to talk about it. They want to change the subject. They try to get out of it. Out of it. Uh, I think they're apathetic. I don't think they care. And when you ask the unfaithful, is this true? They say, well, no, their observation is accurate, but I'm not doing this because of that. I'm doing this because I'm guilty and ashamed and, and, and I don't want to deal with the guilt and shame. 
well, great. Why don't you explain that to, to the betrayed so that they don't misperceive you in a different way? And now we can actually talk about a different way for you to deal with the guilt and the shame in a way that helped facilitate the process versus shutting it down. So be aware of how you're behaving and explain that to your partner so they don't have misassumptions because those misassumptions can change the, the future of the relationship. Uh, so, so these are my tips and advice for the unfaithful. Uh, my tips and advice for the betrayed, uh, one, the most importantly, that if you decide to rebuild the relationship, you really need to be aware of why you're doing that. There is good reasons and there is bad reasons for wanting to rebuild the relationship. Not only that, uh, but whether you rebuild the relationship together or heal individually, both of them are going to be equally difficult choices. And in order for you to stay the course, you have to know what those motivations are so you can remind yourself and stick to it. Uh, bad motivation to rebuild the relationship would be, uh, well, we, we want our kids to have an intact household or divorce is expensive. Well, that's nice. They can be a bonus reasons for rebuilding a relationship, but they cannot be the primary reason. Uh, another advice is remind yourself that your decision about the relationship, uh, whether you rebuild it, uh, or heal individually, it's unique to you. Meaning, don't rely on other people's in your life to uh, their judgment to, to guide that process because at the end of the day, whatever advice and support they're giving you, you're also soliciting their bias and you're going to be the one who's dealing with the consequences of your choice. I've seen people who left when they shouldn't have and I, feel, I saw people who stayed when they shouldn't have because of what other people thought. It is your life, you need to make that determination uh, based on uh, unique circumstances to you. Even if that person who's giving you advice had infidelity in their life, their experience is different than yours. I can, you know, guarantee it. You need to make a decision for, uh, based on unique situation. Uh, last advice that I have for the betrayed. Uh, allow yourself to, to accept that the healing process is going to be difficult, meaning that they're going to be triggers. If you actually put up uh, the, the DSM-5, which is the clinical guide for a therapist, and you look at post-traumatic stress disorder, and you change the word traumatic event to infidelity, you're going to find a picture-perfect fit. Infidelity causes uh, PTSD symptoms, so they're going to be triggers. Uh, you know, if you're dealing with those triggers, it doesn't mean that you're not willing to recover. It just means that's part of the healing process, and it's okay to identify what you need from your partner to help deal with those triggers because suppressing them is not gonna do you any good, but also you need to see if your partner, the unfaithful is going to be able to be there for you during that time. Uh, and also uh, understand that, you know, if, if the parameters of rebuilding trust after discovery of infidelity might seem to be too much or outlandish. Like if you say, you know, I can't trust you yet. I wanna access to your phone. That's fine, that's short term, that's not long term. It's okay for short term to need extra additional tools to help put your mind at ease, as long as you understand that this is not a long-term way for rebuilding trust. Okay, thank you so much for um, those tips there. I do have one quick question for the person who's been betrayed. Um, you know, you say you go through that process of whether I stay and whether I, I, I go. Um, is there a rush to make that decision or, you know, in the sense of like, do I have to make that decision as soon as I hear about it and maybe go to one session of counseling? Do I have to make that decision or? Great question. I always tell my clients, even the ones who come in 
knowing that they want to rebuild the relationship from the get-go. I always say, you know what, pump your brakes. It's not because I don't want you to rebuild your relationship. I want to make sure whatever choice you make is actually based on solid foundation and you can actually show me the math of why you decided to do that. You cannot just, you know, have infidelity happen, don't do all these steps and say, I want to rebuild the relationship. To me, at that point in time, that's a desire, but it's a desire not based on a foundation. Right? We need to figure out what got you to that point. So there is no rush to have to choose at the moment of time. To me, it's more important is to go through the steps that would allow you to make that choice. So, uh, and people always say, okay, well, how do you know which one is the better path for people? And I use the word path because I always say like, you know, if you take a step and you don't like it, you can always circle back. So whatever you choose, you're not stuck with it. Exactly. Uh, so, so three things just briefly, the things that people or that I look at that determine which one is a better path. Uh, for them. One is the history of the relationship prior to the affair. Uh, mm -hmm. There are some people who had a bad relationship from day one and infidelity is just icing on the cake. And there are couples who had a good relationship, but infidelity happened, right? The one in the second right. category are going to be a better candidates for rebuilding. Uh, a second aspect I look at in that assessment is how do people do in the milestones of, you know, telling the story, acknowledging the impact, mm -hmm. being dishonest. And if they're not understanding the impact of what they did, they're, going, they're not going to be good candidates for rebuilding. And the last part is, you know, the type and actual causes of the affair. And that's different for each person based on their worldview and what they deem is forgivable and not. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Asseline. You've been wonderful. Um, definitely for people who are out there and they're thinking they're um, struggling with infidelity, definitely check his website out. Um, the website for Infidelity is www.infidelitycounselingcenter.com. Is that correct? Yep. Okay. Um, and he also, of course, is on social media. He's on Facebook. Um, he's also on Twitter and on LinkedIn as Infidelity Recovery Expert. And definitely, I guess you also have the Systematic Affair Recovery Therapy for those counselors out there who are thinking about um, getting trained and working with, and many of us, and I'm even going to look at it myself, um, because many of us are dealing with couples who have affairs and stuff, and we want to have, you know, the proper tools to help it, help them. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yes, I really, really do appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much, and take care. Okay, all right. Um, this has been the Bringing Intimacy Back show. Thank you so much. And if you enjoyed this show, definitely check us out on our website and check us out on our podcast. Thank you.